Leviticus chapter 27. Hopefully we'll start numbers next week, but usually it takes a bit of time to do some of the introductory material. So if not next Wednesday, God willing, the following Wednesday. But Leviticus 27, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver. And for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him, according to the ability of him who vowed. The priest shall value him. If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good, or, uh, good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy." If it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad as the priest values it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of, the, part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, According to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more, but the field, when it is released in the jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord, as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel. 
But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate. Whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, uh, uh, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Amen. Well, as I pointed out many times in our studies, I am not Rabbi Butler. There are some details and things that escape me when it comes to the book of Leviticus. And chapter 27, for the most part, is one of those. Actually, I think I got somewhat of an understanding, but it is a bit of a difficult chapter, and we're not going to deal with every jot and tittle. But just by way of a bit of an overview, it deals with persons who make vows to the Lord and then who are going to renege on that. You might ask the question, well, if God has persons and moves them in such a way that they feel led to vow to the Lord, why would he build into the law a provision for them to break that vow to the Lord? Well, you see something parallel in other pieces of legislation. The, the legislation concerning divorce, for instance. Jesus says, from the beginning it was not so, but because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted a bill of divorce to be written. So the idea being is that in a post-fall world, sometimes laws are given to help protect the innocent, and in this case, to help protect the weak. So persons would have this desire to devote certain things unto the Lord, perhaps rashly, perhaps unwisely, perhaps imprudently, and then get down that road and say, wait a minute, I can't pay this. And so basically, that's what Leviticus chapter 27 speaks to. It speaks to that particular event where somebody makes a rash or an even uh, a rash vow, and then there's improper vows dealt with toward the end of the chapter, but a rash vow is condemned by God, but there is this provision built into the law such that somebody is able to not get out of it, but to redeem themselves from the obligations of that particular vow. Now, when it comes to the book of Leviticus, it would seem that chapter 26 would have been the place to end the book with that, that list of blessings for obedience and the list of cursings for disobedience. Some have wondered about the placement of chapter 27 here. In fact, Wenham makes the observation that generally commentators offer a historical explanation for the chapter's position. Either that it comes here because this was the law that was re revealed next at Sinai, which is the conservative view, 
or that it was a later addition to the holiness code in Leviticus 17 to 26, which is the liberal view. And then he indicates something that I think does have merit. In chapter 26, essentially you have God's vow to the children of Israel. If you go into the land and you do what you're supposed to, I vow to bless you. If you go into the land and you don't do what you're supposed to, then I vow to curse you. So chapter 26 is God's vow concerning the execution of the terms of the covenant. Chapter 27 then deals with man's vow in terms of his response to God with reference to the, uh, 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 religious devotion. Again, Wenham makes the observation. He says, throughout human history, when men have found themselves in dire straits, they have prayed for deliverance and made vows to God. You see that even in scripture. Perhaps you've done that in your own life. You're pinned in a burning car. You say, Lord, if you get me out of this, then I'm sure I'll be at church every, every Sunday from here on out. And, and this is how you're to understand chapter 27. The things commanded here, the things rather treated here, are not governed by law. This is an expression of the religious zeal of the Israelite. Again, it may be imprudent, it may be unwise, and it may be rash. And so this is a check built in to help sort of uh, keep that person from ending up in a situation where he's broken a vow to God. So back to Wenham, throughout human history, when men have found themselves in dire straits, they have prayed for deliverance and made vows to God, promising to do something for God if he rescued them. Vows are made in the heat of the moment. I think he's right here. I think, I'm, not all vows, but, but when it comes to something that you vow or, or swear to God, but you don't have the wherewithal to pay it, I would suggest that that is rash or that is a heat of the moment decision. He says, in retrospect, when the crisis is over, they may well seem foolish and unnecessary, and the person who made the vow may be tempted to forget it or only fulfill it partially. Scripture includes a number of warnings about such an attitude. Perhaps this is what led Solomon to conclude with reference to vows, or at least state in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better, to not, uh, better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. That's a good piece of wisdom right there, brethren. We do well to heed that. Proverbs 20, 25, it is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. So good wisdom from Solomon concerning vows. Now, when it comes to vows, our confession of faith speaks to this particular subject. And I thought it would be good just to review it. In chapter 23, it's of lawful oaths and vows. And basically, there's a distinction between an oath and a vow. I think Waldron nails it. He says, vows are solemn promises made to the Lord. Oaths are solemn promises made before the Lord but to men. The purpose of the oath is confirmation. The purpose of the vow is commitment. And so in this religious zeal, I commit to the Lord, I'm gonna allot for him my son. I'm gonna allot for him my animal. I'm gonna allot for him my land. I'm gonna allot for him my house. I'm gonna devote it to him. I'm gonna give it to him. But then once the heat cools down, you think, wait a minute, what have I done? And so this chapter is calculated to help head off at the pass 
that sort of uh, uh, lack of wisdom. So in our confession, it deals with the oath in paragraphs one to four. It deals with the nature of lawful oaths in paragraph one. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein the person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what he swears and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. Now, there are some that disregard the oath in this new covenant era. They get upset at the concept that there are oaths or, or vows binding in the new covenant, but there are. Now, we're not supposed to swear about everything. That's what Jesus condemns in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. He is mitigating against that mindset each and every day. I, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I'll have dinner ready at five. I'll, I swear on a stack of Bibles that I'll be there at five. That's not the, 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 the view there. The confession goes on to talk about when, a wo uh, when an oath is warranted. It says in paragraph two, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet as in matter of weight and moment, that's when you use an oath. That's when you use a vow in matter of weight and moment. So when you go into a courtroom and you're swearing at a criminal case and the, the, the bailiff asks you to put your hand on the Bible and to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, that's a matter of weight and moment. You use it at that particular juncture. You don't use it when you tell your wife you're going to be home at five. It goes on to say why, or, or the reason for it, for confirmation of truth, for ending all strife, an oath is warranted by the word of God. So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. So we aren't pacifists, we're not Anabaptists, we're not those who revile or recoil against the notion of oaths in matters of weight and moment. And then in terms of the solemnity, chapter uh, 23, paragraph three, whosoever takes an oath warranted by the word of God ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act and therein to avouch nothing but what he knoweth to be truth, for that by rash, false, and vain oaths the Lord is provoked, and for them this land mourns. And then finally it speaks concerning the, the, the sincerity of the oath. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. Again, good stuff concerning the regulation of oaths. And then vows are dealt with in paragraph 5. It says, a vow which is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. Again, what is in view? It's this idea of entering in with reference to a promise to God and ending up at that point where we say, well, we can't pay it. We, we can't part with this person, this animal, this house, or this land. We, we can't do what we have said to do. So a vow which is not to be made to any creature but to God alone is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. And then it highlights negatively vows that must not be entered into. But popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. So again, the context in the 17th century Reformed confessions 
was always against a tyrannical state, but as well against a tyrannical Roman Catholic Church. So that's why they specify that. They condemn the use of those popish vows that commit one to a monastic view of life, to uh, poverty, celibacy, the various things that are in vogue among the papists, which unfortunately, Protestants are starting to observe Lent. I mean, the, the, the Protestantism is now going toward Lent is just a sad situation. It's happening. It, it, it's probably happening in our town. So, so all that to say, this is the definition of a vow. This is what's happening here in Leviticus chapter 27. So that's the place of oaths and vows in religion, chapter 23. Secondly, the categories of vows in Leviticus 27. First, there is an introduction. Again, verse 1, now the Lord spoke to Moses. This isn't Moses who came up with this. This isn't Moses who, you know, sort of deliberated with himself. Well, you know, Moses, what, Moses? Well, I think these people aren't going to fulfill their vows, so we've got to have something in place, a mechanism to deal with the weak. No, no, no. God spoke through Moses, understanding all too well, because he's infinite, he's omniscient, he knows the weakness built into man, he knows the sinful propensity of man, and so he has put this into place to deal with that particular eventuality. So the first section deals with rash vows, verses 2 to 25. The second section then deals with uh, improper vows in verses 26 to 33. Again, we're not going to do the math. We're not going to get into all the particular details. But just understand that there were rash vows that the children of Israel would make and not be able to, to pay. And so within this body of legislation, there was a way to pay out and to redeem themselves from being under that particular bondage of a broken vow. So you've got first vows including persons and animals in verses 2 to 13. The vows involving persons, there's different valuation placed on males and females and those who are older and those who are younger. And Robert Alter makes the observation, the system of valuation reflects the potential economic productivity of a person of the stipulated age bracket and gender. It's not based on, you know, a, a, a male at 30 is far more valuable inherently, essentially, you know, naturally than a woman is, than, 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 he, than the woman is. No, it's based on economic productivity. Typically a 30-year-old man is able to work harder than a five-year-old girl. I, and that might not hold true today, but that should be the way that it is. So it's based on economic productivity. So the system evaluation reflects the potential economic productivity of a person of the stipulated age bracket and gender. A male has greater potential for productivity than a female. A mature person, greater productivity than a child or than an aged person. It just makes simple sense. And built into the legislation is the understanding that there are two genders. There's men and there's women. And men are built to work harder. And that may seem harsh and vicious and unkind and untoward, but that's the way God designed things. So you've got the vows involving persons, verses 2 to 8. The vows involving clean animals in verses 9 to 10. The vows including uh, involving unclean animals in verses 11 to 13. And again, 
Understand that none of these vows were regulated by the law. God didn't say, you have to separate for me your third-born son as a priest in the sanctuary. You have to give me this animal above and beyond the tithe because that's what really devoted and zealous people do. None of this was that way. The issue is a vow, probably driven by zeal, and it was done rashly and with not a lot of consideration. And then in verses 14 to 24, you've got the dedication of houses and land. You see it throughout, it's to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord. So most likely it is born out of zeal. I want to do something above and beyond my tithe, my offering. I want to serve the Lord. Well, even in that, you've got to be wise. You've got to be prudent. You've got to count the cost. And that's what God is saying in this chapter. It's not endorsing the practice of breaking your vows and invoking this legislation. It's not given to it so that you will consider the vow with less weight and with less importance. This is given to underscore how important the vow really is. It highlights the weightiness involved because if you don't think through these things, it's going to cost you. So you've got the dedication of houses, verses 14 to 15, and then the dedication of land in verses 16 to 24, and then the standard of payment. This is said a couple of times throughout. All the valuations, verse 25, shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 geras to the shekel, an economic system built on objective money. There was hard currency involved, and that's the, the standard by which they measured these things. So those would have been rash vows. I'm going to give my kid. I'm going to give my horse. I'm going to give my dog. I'm going to give, uh, uh, yeah, unclean animal. I'm going to give my clean animals. I'm going to give my house. I'm going to, and then not being able to pay it. So there was a, a method involved by which you could redeem yourself. But then the improper vows are verses 26 to 33. First, you have the firstborn animal. Notice in verses 26 and 27. The idea here is that this is governed by law. God already owns the firstborn animal. So you don't give God the firstborn animal and then say, oh, that's going to be my vow to the Lord, my over and above. No, God already owns that according to Exodus 13.2 and Exodus 13.11-16. So notice in verse 26, for the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. It already belongs to him. You can't give to the Lord what already belongs to the Lord. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it of it, or, or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. So the firstborn animal is an improper vow because it's already owned by God. The next category are things under the ban. The Old Testament or the Hebrew word for this is harem. And harem spoke of things that were devoted to destruction. You see this concept in scripture. You see it in the, the, the mandate for holy war in Deuteronomy 7. The, the, the word may not be there, but the concept is. Go in and utterly dispossess the land of all the Canaanites. Remember Joshua at Jericho. They were supposed to march around and, and not take any of the property. It was devoted to destruction. It was under the ban. Uh, and that's what caused their defeat at Ai. Remember Achan? He saw the things that, that were there, and instead of 
leaving it under the ban or devoted to destruction, uh, uh, Achan grabbed some and he hid it under his tent. Well, as a result, they go to battle at Ai. They should have you know, mopped it up really quickly and easily, but they lost. And so God calls out Achan and Achan confesses to it. Well, those things were devoted to destruction. Not in every instance. There were times when the children of Israel could go and conquer lands and take the spoil or take the booty. They could take all of the possession. But there were other instances where the things were devoted to destruction. That harem principle applied. They were not to take it. First uh, Samuel chapter 15. Saul is given instructions by Samuel to go against Saul, uh, uh, Agag and the Amalekites. And God says, go destroy Agag, destroy all the Amalekites, destroy their sheep, destroy their cows, destroy everything. Why? Because it was devoted to destruction. It was under the ban. So what happens? Saul doesn't do that. And when he comes back to report to Samuel, Saul says, I've done everything the Lord commanded. And Samuel says, well, why am I hearing cows moo? Why am I hearing sheep? Why am I hearing things that should be under the ban? So there were things under the ban, and that's what verses 28 and 29 speak to. Nevertheless, no devoted, devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. Wenham says banning or devoting was a more solemn and irreversible vow than ordinary dedication. Anyone or anything that was devoted to the Lord could not be ransomed. It was usual to invoke the ban in wars against the native inhabitants of Canaan. In divine judgment, all Israel's enemies and their property were devoted to the Lord. It could also be used as judicial sentence against idolaters. It seems unlikely that ordinary Israelites could pronounce such vows only the recognized leaders had authority to declare a death sentence. Now, interestingly, the New Testament counterpart to this concept of harem is anathema. You see that Greek word, or it's usually translated condemned or, or accursed. Well, it's the Greek word anathema that picks up that idea from harem, which means devoted to destruction. And Paul uses it in a few places. Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he says, if he could be accursed, anathema from God for the sake of his own countrymen, he would take that. 1 Corinthians 12, nobody can say Jesus is anathema by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, this is one of the reasons why I think the, you know, praying and, and, and singing the imprecatory Psalms of David, sometimes people say, well, that's not right, that's not Christian, that's not holy. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, the Apostle Paul says, if any man does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Let him be damned to hell. Let him be doomed to destruction. Let him be devoted to destruction. In some sense, it makes the imprecatory Psalms of David look like a walk in the park. And then Galatians 1, 8 and 9. The apostle says, if we or anyone else or an angel from heaven preach to you another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Let him be devoted to destruction. And then the tithes of the Lord, verses 30 to 33. Again, you cannot vow to the Lord what is his by law and right. So you can't say, well, you know, here's my tithe, but it's also my vow of devotion over and above to God. No, God already owns the tithes. So verses 30 to 33 would be an improper vow. And then verse 34 is a conclusion, probably of the chapter and of the book as a whole. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel 
on Mount Sinai. So in terms of its conclusion of the chapter, the chapter assumes that persons will want to freely give to the Lord. But the chapter is not encouraging you to do that necessarily. It's not an encouragement. Go out and vow to the Lord because there's a provision built in. In case you renege, then, then, then there's a way you can sort of buy yourself out of this situation. No, again, all of this is calculated to show the gravity involved of vowing to the Lord to cause one to think twice before he engages in that particular practice. Now, in terms of the potential that the chapter addresses, making a vow rashly and then having to deal with the ramifications or the repercussions. So don't read the chapter, again, as a provision. Well, you can just go out and make a vow, and then this is a way to buy yourself out of it. No, it addresses the potential of making a vow rashly and then having to deal with the negative repercussions. And then the danger, not paying your vow. Not paying your vow. The rules governed the one contemplating breaking the vow. The rules underscored the cost of breaking the vow. So it is a chapter that enforces the necessity that the children of Israel be like the God of Israel. The God of Israel who promises blessings and curses will make it come to pass. The children of Israel that promise God certain gifts or devotions, they must keep that vow. Now, in terms of some basic application, I would suggest first the prob uh, problem of popish monastical vows, like our confession states. This is no small thing. In fact, Colossians 2 is the proof text for that statement in the confession of faith. I think so. No, it's not. It could have been. Colossians chapter 2, if you look there specifically at verses 20 and following. Basically, Colossians 2 is a beware of false teachers chapter. Colossians 2 highlights the, uh, a warning against mystical legalism in verses 16 to 19. And then there is a specific admonition against what's called asceticism. If you notice in 2.20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Now, if you choose not to touch things or to taste things or handle things as a personal preference, you know, for me, I just don't want to eat that. Okay. But if you think that's a commandment of men, like the Lenten practice of not eating fish or not eating meat on Friday, if you think that's religiously significant, Paul's condemning you here. Again, you may in your diet and your whatever regime say, you know, for me, I don't want salad, so I'm just not going to eat salad. Well, that's different than saying God has commanded, and some of us might wish that, that you aren't supposed to eat salads. See the difference there? This is what he's saying. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. We call this asceticism. Holiness by virtue of what we don't do. Holiness by virtue of what we restrain ourselves from. So he goes on to say in verse 22, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. But then look at what he says in terms of condemning this. These things indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body. It appears holy. It appears godly. It appears righteous. Look, look at the holy man. 
Look at the righteous man. He never eats beef. What a godly specimen of a human being. He says, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Popish monastical vows are garbage. Secondly, the problem of Protestant legalistic vows. Don't bind your conscience to well-meaning but dumb Bible teachers. Don't do that. Well, this particular man said you can never this. Well, does the Bible say you can never this? Well, not really. Then it's okay to do it. If God specifies that something is okay, no man is able to say, no, you're not supposed to do that. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It's an intriguing passage because when we hear doctrines of demons, what do we typically think of? We think of, you know, some singer dressed in red with Satan horns and blood pouring down. And we go, oh, that's the doctrines of demons right there, baby. Look at 1 Timothy 4.1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commit. So hang on, let me just stop there for a minute. If you just had verses 1 and 2, what would you be waiting for? Child sacrifice, you'd be waiting for, you know, at least sacrifice of animals, or, you know, cutting up a dog and, you know, offering them up to Satan. I mean, these are bad things. Like, I listen to what he says here. Depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. What do they do? Forbidding to marry and, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. We may be immune from popish monastical vows, but we may not be immune from Protestant monastical vows. If a pastor or teacher or anybody tells you something and the Bible doesn't legitimize that, then don't bind yourself to that sort of a thing. As well, the problem of pietistic circumventions of the law of God. Look at Matthew 15. Matthew 15, pietistic circumventions of the law of God. I didn't know how better to say that. I'm sure there's probably a better way, but that just seemed to suggest itself. Actually, I was trying to go with some uh, alliteration. Problem of popish monastical vows, problem of Protestant legalistic vows, problem of pietistic circumventions of the law of God, that's why. 15.1, then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do, you do, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their, hands or wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. So basically, these guys would take this that was supposed to be for their parents. It wasn't tithe. It wasn't law. It wasn't thou must give this to the sanctuary. This was a devotion. This was a vow. This was an over and above. So, you know, Dad, Mom, you're not going to get, you know, the canned goods this month that you were going to get because, you know, God laid it on my heart to give this money to the sanctuary. Corbin, it's a gift. Give it. Well, that's all good and well, but if your parents are starving to death, do you think God is pleased with your religious devotion? This is what Jesus is condemning there. And, and interestingly, who's he talking to? 
He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. Huh, did, did they have kickback from monies that was put into the temple? Money that was put into the sanctuary? You better believe they got kickbacks. This is, you know, probably like money laundering in a religious ecclesiastical context in the first century. Oh yeah, dad, mom, you're gonna have to starve this month because the Lord laid it on my heart to give extra. And then he peels back some of that extra, he wins, they suffer, and then Jesus says, thus you have made the commandment of God but of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me. Notice again, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. This idea of a man-made religious approach is condemned over and over and over again in scripture. If God lays it upon your heart to give over and above, just make sure that the people around you aren't starving. Make sure that you are fulfilling your obligations all around before you devote to God or give Corbin to God. And then as well, the problem of unprincipled and undisciplined zeal. Our brother at prayer meeting the other day read a section from J.C. Ryle on religious zeal. Now, religious zeal can be either good or bad, right? It has to be zeal according to knowledge. Phineas is commended by God for his zeal when he takes that spear and he shoves it through that, 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 that Israelite, the Midianite woman. There's a zeal, however, that does not register in terms of righteousness and godliness. So if your zeal is operative in an, in an unknowledgeable, or I would suggest an unprincipled and undisciplined way, then you're gonna end up with some big problems when you vow to God and then you can't end up, pay, or you end up not being able to pay it. it. Listen again to Solomon. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So that's the conclusion of the chapter, the conclusion of the book. We have seen many things in the book of Leviticus. It ultimately resolves the tension that we see at the end of Exodus chapter 40, God's presence is in the tabernacle, but the children of Israel cannot approach. The book of Leviticus comes to resolve that tension. It asks, answers the question, who can abide in your holy hill? It is the one who by God's grace comes through a bloody knife and a smoking altar. And then the book of Leviticus specifies not only the manner or the means by which we approach God, but the maintenance of that relationship with God. And of course, Leviticus points us very, very conspicuously to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say the entirety of the book does that, specifically chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, and then chapters 21 and 22, the conduct of the priests. It speaks to how the priest is to be and how the sacrifice is to be, and Jesus fulfills both. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Leviticus. We thank you for the, the emphasis that we find on sacrifice and atonement and satisfaction for sin. We see as well the emphasis upon your holiness and your righteousness and your justice, and we see the goodness of your laws. We know, God, they're not given uh, in this new covenant uh, era for our salvation, but as saved men and women, we learn many wonderful things concerning who you are and what you require from your creatures. We pray now that you would go with us, watch over us and the rest of our church, bring us together on the Lord's day that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. 
And we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.